You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Virginia Pastrell, who is currently at the Smith Institute for Political Economy and Philosophy at Chapman University, also has written for Bloomberg and The Atlantic and a variety of other periodicals, and is also the author of multiple books, two of which I have here with me, the most recent of which is called The Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Made the World. And of course, there is The Substance of Style, a classic of yours from a couple of years ago, and then also The, the Power of, of Glamour, which I don't have with me, but welcome, Virginia. Thank you. I'm, I'm a big fan of Fernand Braudel. When I was trained as an historian, I read a lot of, and I remember Having my eyes opened when I read his work must have been 30 years ago, maybe 35 years ago, because there was this whole aspect of history that had been ignored by the mainstream historians who focused primarily on political issues. But even even the economic historians, they would overlook so much of what made humans. And I think the biologists have also, the evolutionary, the anthropologists, regardless of what discipline you're looking at, it seems like fabrics and cloth you know, have been overlooked. It's kind of astonishing. And I think you make the claim that we as hairless apes, you know, we co-evolved with cloth. And at the very beginning of the book, you talk about this, how there were some archaeologists who it dawned on them all of a sudden that these axes that they had been obsessing over for hundreds of years, oh yeah, there was something that kind of connected the axe to the handle, which was this little thing called string. And and you provocatively say that it's the string that made us human. Now, I've already interviewed people who said it was fire that made us human and and the wheel that made us human. And so, you know, you're going to have to defend this idea that it's the it's the string that made us human. <laughs> right. Well, what I say is that what we call the Stone Age could just as easily be called the String Age because string was an absolutely critical technology. Because once you figure out that you can take plant fibers and roll them together to make string, you suddenly, it's a general purpose technology, like a semiconductor or a steam engine. It has a lot of applications. You can make fishing nets. You can make traps for animals. You can make baby carriers to, so that you have your hands free when you're carrying a child. You can hang your food up from a branch or something so that it's not on the ground. Lots and lots of things become possible because of string, one of which, as you alluded to, is you can take your stone weapons or or whatever, your stone knives, and you can attach them to a stick and make a spear or, or an arrow. Those sorts of things become possible. So it's this critical, very early technology. And in fact, between the time that I submitted the first manuscript and the time six weeks later that I did the revision, there was a paper published where people had identified Neanderthal string that was 50,000 years old, really old string. So it's a very important technology, but, you know, string rots and stones don't. So that people didn't really think about looking for string or later on 10,000 years rather than 50 looking for textiles our minds are shaped by what is left and what is left is the hard stuff there's a survivorship bias right music and poetry and other art for even physical handicrafts and manufactures that are made out of things that rot and decay tend to be forgotten one of the books that I read a while ago, a couple decades ago, I guess it was Women's Work, and I think it was the other book, The Mummies of Urumqi. And and I think that when they discovered those mummies, it was really eye-opening because there was so much in the form of textiles that had survived. And there are a few cases where you have mummies where you see surviving textiles, but it's generally pretty, pretty rare the further back you go. Yeah, and both of those books are by Elizabeth Barber, who was very important in putting textile archaeology on the map in the 1990s, which is ironic because she was actually trained and is a linguist, not an archaeologist. But she had noticed, looking through the literature, that every here and there, there would be 
mentions of textiles. And she thought, oh, do a little project here and put it all together. And then it turned into, you know, it wasn't this nine-month project. It was like a life's work. Uh, and, and in addition to the two books you mentioned, she also has a big academic book called Prehistoric Textiles. But that then led to a much I mean, there had been textile archaeologists before her, hence she had something to work with, but her work led to a lot more attention to the field. And since the 1990s, when it was published, there's been an explosion of interest uh, in this relatively esoteric field. But there are people who work in Europe, who work in the Americas, who work in Asia in trying to discover the history of textiles and part of that, the the prehistory of textiles really. And part of that is there are a few places like Northwest China where the mummies of Rumji were found that are dry enough or in some cases there are bogs in Europe that have anaerobic environments to actually preserve cloth. But also archaeologists got more clever about looking for other signs of textiles, such as mineralization, where there used to be, say, a textile wrapping, a vase or a pot, and the textile long ago disappeared, but you can still see the pattern. And it used to be that got cleaned off (laughs) so as to look prettier in the museum or whatever. And now people are very careful about preserving it because you can tell about weave structures and learn about textiles that way as well. I think for those of us who have 50 t-shirts in our drawer, it's kind of hard for us to imagine how much productivity improvement has taken place over the last you know, couple of millennia. And I was recently interviewing someone who's using kind of how much work you have to do to manufacture light. Oh, as, yes. Uh, that's as a metric, a classic, right? You've yeah, seen that, right? right? So you would have to work all day in in mesopotamia to get like three minutes of you know light from sesame oil and now you can work five minutes and and get a week's worth of artificial light i think we forget about how dramatic these productivity increases have been and how how much time human labor was devoted to the manufacture of both thread and and fabric you know buying a the equivalent of a t-shirt was the equivalent of buying I don't know, a car or maybe even a house back in certain times in our history, right? Yeah, until really until the 18th century, it was very common for people to have one set of clothes in Europe. In the 18th century, you started to have this sort of rise of a commercial society that became a little bit richer and a typical person would have two sets of clothes. Um, or, Or when I say sets of clothes, I don't necessarily mean the whole set, but like two shirts and some underwear and you know things like that. But the real revolution only occurred with the development of spinning machines in the late 18th century. This has launched the Industrial Revolution. And from studying uh, textiles, I finally realized, like, why spinning machines? You know, why not something else? And the reason is that cloth takes a tremendous amount of thread to make anything. And Before the Industrial Revolution, it took an incredible amount of time to make any amount of thread. So, for example, if you take a pair of jeans or a pair of trousers, it takes about six miles of thread to weave the fabric that you need to make that. And before the Industrial Revolution and the development of spinning machines, the fastest spinners in the world, the best spinners in the world who were Indians using the charka, one of them would have taken about 100 hours to spin enough fabric to make one pair of jeans. So you can see, I mean, 100 hours, even at very low wages, that becomes extremely expensive. And that's just the thread. That doesn't include the farming related to raising the in this case, cotton, cleaning it, ginning it. It doesn't include the weaving or knitting. It doesn't include dyeing, all of these other processes that are also part of creating fabric. So you can see why developing industrial fabric production becomes revolutionary. And the other important thing to remember is that it's not just clothes. Textiles are everywhere. They're everywhere today, and they were even more 
omnipresent in the world before plastic, basically, (laughs) because sacks and sails, all kinds of belts and straps, they're just all around. And of course, home textiles like sheets and towels and things like that. Well, I thought to say, you know, discussion about sails was particularly interesting, right? Because this was the basis for military power, right? If you're at Venice and the Roman, I mean, even into the 1600s, the Venetian Navy was primarily driven by human labor, right? It was oars. And it was the Vikings that really introduced this idea of sailing long distances. And, And I think you mentioned that just to produce one sail took how many thousands of hours of labor? Well, producing just the thread for a Viking sail took the equivalent of 385 eight-hour days, just the thread. And from start to finish, the sail took longer to make than the ship. And of course, they weren't exactly using power tools to make those ships, but plucking or shearing the sheep, cleaning the wool, spinning the wool, weaving the wool, sewing together the panels that came off the loom because they were not the width of a big sale. All of that was an enormously labor-intensive process. And there is a story in one of the Viking sagas where the hero, the only time he ever cries is when his sail is stolen because it's so incredibly valuable and, of course, important to doing anything. So this meant that there were people spinning pretty much all the time, right? Basically, women around the world spent all their time spinning. Yeah. Especially once mills for grinding grain, water-powered mills for grinding grain, which was the other thing they used to spend all their time doing, came into being. Then there was even more time for spinning. And there are different ways of spinning. The most common and the oldest is what's known as a drop spindle, which is basically a weight and a stick, and the stick goes through the weight, and you feed fiber onto it, set it spinning, and the weight keeps it going, and you just, and it is something you can do while you're doing other things. You can do it while you're walking, you could, which is a good thing because it was uh, very, you know, you needed a lot of time to make anything. Uh, So this was like the original gig economy, right? I mean, you would presumably be doing this not just for domestic purposes, but you would be producing it for the, there'd be these large enterprises or semi-large enterprises that would be sourcing all of their thread from these women in their domestic capacity, right? Yes, there was, it varied in different places, but yes, it was very much, there was a system uh, of, at least in places in Europe, of putting out where somebody who was a textile manufacturer. (laughs) These are small enterprises themselves, but somebody who was going to get the cloth woven would buy, say, raw wool and give it to the spinners and pay them a certain amount for every pound that they spun into thread. That was a typical way of doing it. And before the Industrial Revolution, one estimate is that there were a million people in a British workforce of four million who were engaged full-time in spinning. And and you talk about even after this became highly skilled labor, that uh, women tended to dominate. You have this you have this discussion where about the Italian factories. And and it happened a couple hundred years before the birth of the Industrial Revolution. So in, in northern in Piedmont and in northern Italy and then later in, in Lyon, right? Why is there so much attention to the steam engine and factories in the Midlands? And we haven't really paid a lot of attention to this. This was the most incredible thing I learned, and especially to see the reconstructions or in some cases preserved versions of these. These are silk, they're called throwing mills. Throwing is twisting two silk threads together to make a strong warp thread. But they were actually, that's a bit of a misnomer because they actually went from the cocoon to to the final thread. And they are huge. That They have these giant machines that are about nine or 10 feet wide with these circles with bobbins going and feeding other things. And they're several stories high. They're water powered. And they started to be built. Well, they really spread in the, in the 1600s. Uh, so it's long before the Industrial Revolution. They date back to 
the 1500s and even earliest ones might be in the 1400s, late 1400s. But they were doing silk, which is a luxury good. And they were operating 24-7. I asked a historian who studies them, what did they use for light? He said, torches. And I said, wasn't that dangerous? He said, yes. <laughs> but they had, they would start with the cocoons. And they had these highly skilled women who uh, would, you put the cocoons in warm water to melt the gum that holds them together. And then you have to reel these very delicate fibers off onto a, a, a reel pick them up. And then as you want, run out of one cocoon, you need to find another one that matches and, and get it going. And then once you have that, then you can twist those together and make it stronger. It's quite an elaborate process. The people who worked in it were very well compensated for the time. These maestre, as they're known, the women who did the reeling, made more money than their husbands. <laughs> in some cases, there were they, the ones who were really good could get you know, headhunted to go elsewhere. But the reason it's not as revolutionary is because it's silk, uh, because it doesn't have that sort of ripple effect. It did help inspire some of the things that probably led to the eventual Industrial Revolution, which was oriented first toward cotton. But it was very specialized. So these Piedmont Italian factories were making the silk thread that then went over the Alps to Lyon, which was the French center of silk weaving and pattern making and dyeing and fashion, very tied into the French court. So that was the the sort of economic ecosystem there. So part of the story uh, of the book is really about the diffusion of this productivity-enhancing know-how. And what you just described in Piedmont, they had done something similar in China, but must have been hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. You said they had some mechanization of the process. And yet these things, they diffused re- relatively slowly. And I think you provide examples of how the intellectual property was being defended and nobody really wanted to share the information. And then there were a couple folks that would sneak in. And the story I'm most familiar with is how the Waltham mills in Massachusetts were created by a guy who snuck into the you know English mills and memorized it. But you have a whole bunch of examples of people doing this sort of thing. And there are more that I don't have. Industrial espionage runs through the history of textiles, everything from medieval monks sneaking silk eggs out of China in canes to the one you alluded to, which were these two English brothers, the Long brothers, who one of whom, who I suppose was the more mechanically inclined, went to Piedmont, got a job in one of these mills, and at night would draw the plans for the machines that he saw. And then he snuck the plans out in bundles of cloth for, you know, export. And also he and some workers went to England. And so he took not just the plans, but also some of the know-how, the tacit knowledge, if you will, in the workers' heads. And they went to England and started Silk Mill in Derby which seems to have, it's hard to exactly trace things, but seems to have been one of the inspirations for some of the, not some of the early spinning machines, not the ones that ultimately worked, but there were several that along the way before that, that were important in the development of the spinning machines and the mechanization of of spinning and the industrial revolution. I think there's one example of an entrepreneur who had a patent and he tried to extend the patent. And I guess it was the the French monarch who said, no, we're we're just going to buy it off you and then uh, make this information public, right? No, that was this guy. That was the British. It was, that was Loam's uh, yeah. patent. Yeah. For, yeah. He, so he, he, they stole it and then they got a patent in Britain. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then, and then when he said, I want to extend it. They said, we'll just give you this. I forget the exact numbers in the book, but this enormous pile of money. <laughs> it was huge for the day, but we'll make it public. And that's what they did. Yeah. And I guess one of the other things that kind of slowed it down, perhaps not um, by that much, was this resistance to these productivity increases. And, and in the book, you explicitly referenced modern 
discussions that seem to echo this idea that the robots are going to take our jobs. And of course, the Luddite movement was explicitly against... The Luddites were weavers, yeah. Yeah, weavers. But you have all these earlier examples yeah. with involving thread. Yeah, so a generation before the Luddites, there was resistance to these spinning machines, partly because they were patented and people, they didn't like that, but mostly because there were a lot of people whose jobs were threatened. And this is a real thing. This does happen. And there was a reallocation of whose skills were super valuable. So before the spinning machines, weavers had often been idle because they couldn't get enough thread to weave. Once the spinning machines came in, there was an expansion of demand for weavers, and weavers made good money for the day. And it was what one historian calls a golden heyday for them. But that lasted about a generation. They benefited from the spinning machines that other people protested. And then a generation later, power looms came in. And that's where you get the Luddites, who were weavers. They were not, unlike today's Luddites, they were not ideologues. They were not people who had some cultural distaste for technology or something like that. They were just guys who didn't want to lose their jobs at a time when losing your job could mean starving. This is a serious business. But they smashed looms and the government said, you can't do that. Few people were executed, actually, because of violent actions. A lot of people were deported to Australia. But the looms continued, and we had this enormous expansion of productivity. Another example is people may have heard of the Jacquard loom. It's famous in tech circles because Jacquard used punch cards to tell the loom whether to lift or not lift a warp thread. And this greatly sped up weaving complex patterns. And it made every kind of weaving easier, much more automated. And the initial people in Lyon, even though, which is where he was, initially he was honored by the government. The weavers were not happy and he kept being run out of Lyon and his machines burned and and such. But eventually they came around and they actually realized that using this new technology, which was extremely complicated. It was at the frontier of precision machinery at the time. Using this technology could help Lyon regain the place as the weaving center that it had lost after the French Revolution because it had been very tied to you know the court. And after the French Revolution, other places in Europe had become more prominent. So it turned out that in the long run, or even not even long run, the medium run, it benefited the weavers of Lyon. They relocated to a different part of the city and changed their technologies. I think that the cultural importance of weaving is sort of right in front of us, and it's so right in front of our nose that we sometimes overlook it. Spinning has some metaphorical connotations in our language. We spin a yarn and so forth. But the idea of weaving, it's so built into our language, and you have a little brief section in the book where you point out, weave a plan and, and so forth. And this idea, the French word metier is a loom. And, and even I, I remember I read the Statesman from Plato many years ago, oh, and, yeah. and I, but I, I totally forgot that the Statesman's basically a weaver who's weaving together all the different parts of society. When weaving was such a an important occupation. I can see how it would, and since everyone understood it, even ordinary people understood the mechanics of weaving, presumably because there were looms everywhere, it, it would make sense as a metaphor, right? Yeah. And there, there are lots of metaphors in lots of different languages. Obviously, I primarily concentrated on English and some of them we've completely forgotten what they mean. So like on tenterhooks, I know what tenterhooks are. I've seen tenterhooks in a museum, but most people have no idea. And they are these pretty vicious looking little, they're hooks, but they're really more like spikes. And you stretch wool cloth that has been fulled, which is a way of raising the fibers to make it stronger and more even. You stretch it across so that it's under this great tension. But think about shuttle, the word shuttle. That is a weaving term. That's the thing that takes the thread back and forth. I thought it was the thing that took you to the terminal at Washington yeah. Dulles. Well, or and whatever. so we use it 
in a lot of metaphorical ways. So we use it for airport shuttles. We use it for the space shuttle. But that's the original shuttle is this thing that takes the thread back and forth across the loom. Yeah. And I I thought that it wasn't that much of a stretch to say that weaving is at the birthplace of computing, right? Everyone in Silicon Valley, we always, Ada Lovelace is sort of our founder, but I think most people don't really understand why that's the case. How, to what extent is this, these punch cards that were being used, that were created by Jacquard, to what extent is that actually coding information? Yeah. Yeah. The, it goes back farther than that, I argue, that weaving is the original binary operation because you either are lifting a thread or you're not lifting. You're going over or under. You've got this one or zero intrinsic process. And so people have been figuring out ways to record and remember those patterns for thousands and thousands of years. In the 19th century, Jacquard came up with a way of mechanizing uh, or automating, really, some of the most complicated kinds of weaving, which had been done uh, on what are called draw looms. And it's quite complicated. I won't try to explain it orally. Uh, there's pictures in the book, but um, but that is where you want to make a picture of like birds or something, something that is not naturally on uh, perpendicular lines. And so you have to lift individual very fine threads to make the pattern. So he figured out how to do that by having a card where each card represented one pass across the loom. And there was either a hole or not a hole saying whether or not you lifted a specific thread. And then what he figured out, we're building on other people's that hadn't worked as well, is that then it would automatically go to the next card or the next line and you would just hit a pedal and it would advance. And this inspired Ada Lovelace, as you mentioned, to, to a metaphor that says the analytical engine weaves algebraic patterns. But that there is this idea that you can translate things into a binary code, and that starts with weaving. And before it inspires computers, it inspires other kinds of things like welding systems and stuff like that for building ships, ironclads in the 19th century mechanization. And then uh, one of the things I learned, which is really interesting, is the earliest computer memory before the development of silicon chips in the 1970s was itself woven. It was what was known as magnetic core memory, where you had a woven grid of wires. And at each intersection, you had a little, very tiny donut that was magnetic and could be flipped from positive to negative, and there were diagonal wires that would read what was happening, and that was how you would do your ones and zeros, and that was literally woven. I mean, if you look at it, it looks like cloth, only out of wires. That just comes out of the basic binary structure of weaving. That was the logical way to do it. And so before that, how did people communicate patterns or remember patterns? I think you pointed out that there was a a notation that had been devised. It's because it's like choreographical notation. Before choreographical notation, you had to pass everything on. You you had to physically demonstrate things or pass things on in in some apprentice form. But when was this notation created? Well, they're different. They're different ways of remembering patterns in different parts of the world because people weave all over the world. Uh, So, for example, very sophisticated patterning in the Andes is done by playing with symmetry learning patterns and then reversing them. And so it's there's nothing written down. It's all in the, the weaver's mind, but they learn specific patterns and then they play with the sort of mathematical, the symmetry. In Asia, there are a lot of traditional loom systems that use things like bamboo sticks or threads to create patterns that can be kept. But what you're talking about is the development of notation in Europe which was published for the first time in the 17th century by a fellow named Mark Siegler. And he developed a way of recording, okay, here's how you thread the loom, and here is the order in which you lift different heddles, which are the things that, the, the shafts that lift all up all the uh, 
certain threads, like all the odd numbered ones or the even number ones. And it, it is very similar to musical notation or something like that. And weavers today, hand weavers, I did learn to weave as I was researching the book, hand weavers use a notation that's very similar now. And you can look at it and you can tell how to repeat a pattern and you can go online to handweaving.net and you can see a ton of these, including ones that have been modernized from Ziegler's book. But this was the first time somebody wrote down the patterns. And this is part of the story too, which is this move toward making what used to be trade secrets public. It happens in the 16th century with dye it happens in the 17th century with weaving patterns, and it's part of a general something in the air in, in that period that's not just about textiles, but about knowledge in general, of metallurgy, the Diderot's Encyclopédie, those sorts of things. And this it definitely happens in textiles as well. Well, I think you also argue that kind of weaving requires some kind of mathematical thinking and that a lot of the early mathematicians would use kind of weaving metaphors and illustrations when they were describing mathematical concepts, right? Yeah, there's some very interesting work suggesting that the roots of Greek mathematics come from weaving, at least some of them, and specifically the the arithmetic, or as we would say today, number theory, that is in Euclid's elements, uh, which people remember for the geometry, but that a lot of sort of earliest algorithms, if you will, are very understandable coming out of a culture where weaving was not only a, an activity that lots of people engaged in, but was really culturally center. This is where Athena, the goddess of weaving, is the central deity, where there are cultural celebrations specifically around weaving. So you get something like division by subtraction, which has been called the granddaddy of all algorithms and is very basic in computers, which is basically you've got a big number and a small number. You want to know if the big number is divisible by the small number. The way you do that is you just keep subtracting the small number from the big number until you wind up either with zero or with a remainder. And you can understand this if you think about a loom where you're trying to make a pattern be evenly distributed across the cloth and not end up with half a horse at the end or something like that. You take the number of threads that it's going to require from each side until you get to the middle and you either have zero, in which case you're good to go, or you have some weird little leftover, in which case you need to add some more threads on the side to, to get it to be even. And this is in Euclid, this idea, uh, as are all kinds of things about prime numbers and what's divisible by what. And these are things that you have to think about if you're dressing a loom. If you're setting up a loom, you have to think about all these sorts of relationships. So it's natural that a society where weaving is arguably the central or one of the central with sailing activities would figure out these mathematical relationships. And then comes along very ingenious mathematicians who abstract it to the general principle. If we fast forward to the Italian Renaissance, it seems like the folks that were inventing accounting and were also <laughs> deeply enmeshed in the business of cloth. So, you know, you talk about Fibonacci and I don't know if you mentioned Luca Pacioli, but this was probably the most um, most important trade uh, at the time. And it was, yeah. And I, I've I studied financial history, and you know we, we would emphasize the, the goldsmiths and their role in the creation of kind of international exchange. But really, it was the cloth merchants that played the primary role in kind of moving money around. At least after the Templars and those guys were gone, all those Italian families that were lending money to the kings of England, they were all cloth merchants, weren't they? Right. They pretty much started out as cloth merchants. Yeah, the goldsmith were sort of, they had the money, whatever, but who were their customers? They tended to be cloth merchants. The cloth trade is the defining trade in Europe for a number of centuries. And it involves a lot of foreign exchange. It involves moving money around different cities, city-states, and countries that have different standards of different monetary systems. And there's also this question of how do you move money without actually hauling gold bars over the Alps or something like that. So 
the cloth merchants developed various systems like bills of exchange, which allowed them to move money on paper without actually physically moving gold or silver. And that developed into banking networks. And then also, as you mentioned, the the introduction of Hindu Arabic numbers, of pen and paper calculation, and of double entry bookkeeping all come into Europe through the demand for this among textile merchants. And so, you know, setting up schools, I write about this in the book, setting up schools to teach kids how to do the kinds of arithmetic that you learned in elementary school. Somebody, first of all, you realize, oh, wait a minute, somebody had to invent those techniques. The numerical relationships may exist independent of us, but how we add, subtract, multiply, and divide on paper, somebody had to figure out, and then somebody had to teach it to people who had been using Roman numerals and abacuses. So, the textile merchants in Italy started setting up these schools to teach their children how to do that. And you can read these word problems and a huge number, a very large percentage of them have to do with converting cloth into various things, doing foreign exchange about cloth. They're all about textiles. So this was hugely important in the early modern period in developing all the commercial relationships and institutions in Europe. I feel like you could do a whole history just by looking at word problems in like what you teach people in these word problems. It reflects kind of what the most important applications of mathematics are in that culture at the time, right? Well, and there may be a lag that just makes me think about how many there were about trains when I was growing <laughs> up and trains really weren't that significant in, in my life. <laughs> I, I can't remember what my word problems are about. I just know the ones that I create for my students yeah. when I'm giving exams. But there's one other area that you discuss, which is the rise of chemistry and how deeply influential the creation of dyes for fabrics were. And I love the story about the togas, right? So we all we all know about the purple togas, but none of us really know what went into it. And there's it, a pretty um, disgusting story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it makes you realize how, how not only was it a lot of work, but it was a lot of unpleasant work that went into it. Yeah, it was a lot. Of, and that's generally true. Dyes are... It's not a modern phenomenon that dyes are stinky and use a lot of water and make a lot of pollution. But yes, so we know from ancient sources that the most prestigious color in the ancient world was a purple that came from murex snails. There are three different species that are found in the Mediterranean. The problem is that, fast forward to Byzantium, the Byzantine rulers they made it a monopoly and they had only a very few people who did their dyeing. And when Constantinople fell to the Turks, that knowledge of how to do that dyeing was lost. And it's commonly thought, I've run into this a lot, that the snails went extinct, but that's not true. The snails are still there. I tell the story about an archaeologist at Washington University in St. Louis named Deborah Rochillo, who is an expert on faunal remains, which are basically dead bones, <laughs> ancient bones. So she's the kind of person who can look at the sheep bones and tell you whether the people were raising the sheep for wool or meat or both, you know, that sort of thing. And she got interested in the fact that there are these giant piles of shells all over the Aegean and the Mediterranean, various places that are left over from these dyes. And she wanted to figure out what, how many snails did it take, what was involved. So she and a graduate student went to a, a bay off of Crete where the snails were, and they first put down traps, and which were basically, they looked like vases. And the first thing they learned is it's not a very efficient way of catching snails because you get a lot of things you don't want, including water. So it's very heavy and you have nasty stinging creatures in there as well as the snails you want. So they combine the traps with just hand picking up things off the floor. So they get their snails and then they have to get them open, which is a whole other story because they're very hard. They manage to crack them open. And then what you have to do is take out a gland that has the purple in it. So they take out these glands and they put them in a little pot like you'd have on your stove. And this is where the story gets very gross <laughs> because you're dealing with dead snail flesh. <laughs> and number one, 
they end up with a pile of shells that looks very much like the shells that she's seen at sites, except that it's got rotting snail flesh in it. And it attracts all these nasty flies, these horse flies that were biting them and trying to lay eggs in the in their pots. And, and the other thing is the whole thing was incredibly smelly. It was so smelly that even though they had carefully located far away from anybody, there were workers like, you know, a hundred meters away who were complaining about the smell. And they were just doing it at a very small scale on in these little pots like you'd have on your on your stove at home. Whereas if in ancient tire the whole city was full of vats of these things. So you can imagine it was not very pleasant. So it stained their hands and they got a bunch of different colors, dyeing on wool and silk. And But one of the things that's amazing is that the fabric still smells. It still smells 20 years later after being washed and tied. So <laughs> you can imagine in ancient Rome that the people wearing these garments that were dyed in this way had an unpleasant smell. And in fact, this is recorded in various satirical poems from ancient Rome about the smell. It's a sign of, but that guarantees that it's uh, it's shit. It's the it's real not- thing. Yeah, exactly. It shows that it's the real thing, that it's not something that was achieved a similar kind of color with plant dyes. So it, it is the signature of not a counterfeit. But it, it was a very unpleasant process. And they came to the conclusion that in the ancient world, it must have been done by slaves because even though it was quite profitable, it or grad was students. just... Yeah, or grad students. She did it too, not just the grad student. There were two of them. This highlights how much human effort goes into not just things that have a useful purpose, like protecting us from the elements or sailing boats to go invade countries and so forth. This didn't serve any other purpose than to provide uh, some luxury or some status. And I think in your other book, The Substance of, of Style, you know, I think you, you tackle this head on because that there's always been this tension, right? There's always been this concern that, you know, we're investing a lot of resources in creating things that, that aren't just protecting us from the elements. Clothing and fabric has always been a, a way of distinguishing yourself. You mentioned the silk. Silk was a luxury, right? It wasn't just that it was felt good and that it looked good, but it was expensive and was a status marker. Yeah. One of the things that's very interesting about fabric is the earliest fabrics that we have appear to have been dyed uh, or colored in some ways. And so, for example, I write in the book about some fabric that is 6,200 years old from Peru that was found on a sort of ritual site. And it has stripes of indigo, dyed with indigo. And also there's the cotton comes off the plant. It's sort of a beige color. So it's got that, it's got the indigo, and then it's also got some very white milkweed. So somebody went to a lot of trouble in what was, by our standards, a very poor society, subsistence uh, society, to add this patterning to the cloth. So it's clearly more than functional. We don't know in this particular case what the significance was, whether it was a marker of identity or just because people thought it was beautiful or status. It could be anything. But what we do know is all around the world, people figured out how to dye with indigo using different plants in different places. And the process of dyeing with indigo is quite complicated. It requires a lot of trial and error to figure out. And yet you find indigo dyeing, as I mentioned, in Latin America, you find it in Africa, you find it in Europe, you find it in India, hence the name, you find it in South Asia, East Asia, and again, using different plants to get this beautiful blue. So it seems like aesthetics is as old as as humanity itself. And maybe this takes us back to your, you know, substance of style. When we think about the cave paintings in Lascaux, right? We say, oh, that's art. Presumably, whatever they happen to be wearing, you know, when they were painting this, well, that, that's not art. That's just there to keep them warm. My, my guess is that even those guys who were painting the, the caves were probably thinking about what they looked like, right? But, you know? Could be. The earliest fabrics that we have, which are obviously not, you can tell, 
fabric had been around for a while, which are about 10,000 years old, 9,000 years old. I think they come from a cave in Israel. They are very artistically done. They have decorative stitching on them. Somebody was caring about how they looked. We don't know why. Again, we don't know. Maybe it was just because it was beautiful or it was significant in some way or both. Those two things are not contradictory. But it's clear that people have this aesthetic impulse as well. And certainly it expresses itself in textiles. And for many people throughout history, their textiles would have been the art or what they owned in their life that was beautiful and decorative. Um, And so you see, for example, I mean, to this day in the hills of Laos, women making unbelievably beautiful and complex silk brocades that they use for everyday wear and decoration of their houses, they raise the silk themselves, so or at least traditionally did. So they have a supply, but these are peasants. It's pretty impressive. Now, to, to go back to Plato, right? Plato made this distinction famously between kind of the doctor and the, and the cosmetician and between the uh, doctor and the, and the chef, right, or whatever. And, and I can't remember the exact, which dialogue that was in, but, but I think you, your book, Substance of Style, you, you kind of question that, that strain of aversion to style. And you try to emphasize that aesthetics is, is something which is innately human and profoundly important for us as, as humans. Yeah. I mean, the substance of style very much is trying to interrogate the question of what is the value to people? Why does it have economic value of the look and feel of things uh, beyond their functional aspects, which are obviously important? And what besides status? Because sometimes it is status, but there's this tendency, I think it's especially common actually among economists who don't think there's anything wrong necessarily. You talk about Robert Frank in in that book. Yeah, yeah. he's obsessed with it. But there are other things people get from aesthetics besides status. And there are other kinds of social meanings and identities that are conveyed by aesthetics that are not about hierarchy and certainly not about a single hierarchy that equals either income or political power. Uh, there, You often, even in traditional societies, will have more than one hierarchy. So, for example, in Tokugawa, Japan, there was the official Confucian hierarchy where merchants were low and their clothes were highly regulated, what they could wear. They couldn't wear the fancy brocades, but they just developed a different kind of style that was more subtle and that was in many ways more prestigious because they were actually, people weren't really aspiring to be samurai. They were aspiring to be wealthy townspeople. So you see this, these themes that are in the substance of style definitely come out in the fabric of civilization as well about people's desires to have these qualities of pleasure and meaning in the artifacts around them that go far beyond just the functional qualities of cloth, which are incredibly important, but don't account for a tenth of the effort that's gone into to making things over over the centuries. Well, you talk about the sumptuary laws that, that we see come and go, and, and maybe we don't have sumptuary laws in U.S., but we certainly have dress codes, like in certain schools, and consistently trying to differentiate themselves by, you know, I went to a high school which required a coat and tie, but everyone would try to figure out which tie and coat can make you look, you know, which way. And, and if you want to look, you want to put a lot of effort into making it look like you don't care. Right? There's a whole bunch of different ways that you, you can do this. You know, how would we make that distinction between kind of status seeking and expression or appreciation of uh, aesthetics. I mean, anybody who is pursuing status will probably say, oh, it's, it's not about the status. It's about the quality. This handbag, it's just so well made. That's why I'm carrying it around, not because I'm trying to signal that I'm wealthy, but it's just a beautiful object, like a work of art. Is there a way to distinguish between those? You you can't always. I mean, some, because I think in many cases, something like very finely crafted handbag 
could very well be an object of pleasure for its owner and also an object of status. I mean, in the substance of style, I talk about toilet brushes because I can't imagine anybody pursues status by picking their toilet brush, and yet there's different styles out there. That, I think that's a little bit less today than when I was writing that book. But you also see a lot of things like, for example, there are uses that I talk about in the book of textiles that express identity that are not, there may be some status involved, but that's not what we associate with. So if you think about kente cloth and the use of kente cloth itself or uh, prints derived from kente cloth patterns to signal pride among the African diaspora or within Africa, that's not really about status in, in the simple Robert Frank, show me how much money you have way. It's about identity. It's about identity, yeah. exactly. And similarly, in I write about in Guatemala, the way the traditional dress has evolved in the past few decades in ways that are less tied to everybody from a certain village dressing a certain way and more about the way the women just like it, and yet it still is distinctively Maya. And of course, now it's turned into something you can find on Instagram. So, but that, again, is about identity. So there are these examples that you can say, well, this is very clearly about something that's distinct from status hierarchies. Now, I'm sure within the people who dress in this traditional manner, and certainly there are distinctions if you get to real Kente cloth. First of all, there is such a thing as real Kente cloth as opposed to a cotton print printed with some, But there are more and less high-status things if you're a connoisseur. But the typical African-American at their graduation from college who's wearing a Kente cloth-inspired stole, that is about identity. It's not about status. Yeah, and I guess the, you know these cultural critics would say, okay, I, I get it. You want to express your identity. So if you're Orthodox Jewish, you're going to dress a certain way to communicate your membership in this you know, group. You know, If you're communicating that you're a member of the Abercrombie and Fitch group, that's sort of a, a manufactured identity and, and to be a little more maybe cynical about that type of identity, right? Well, you can be cynical about it, but if it were as easy to manufacture as people tend to think, you wouldn't see these patterns where, you know, Abercrombie and Finch is very prestigious at one moment and then out of style at the next. Uh, or it's not as easy to manufacture these things as either marketing people or critics would like to, to think. There is some kind of connection with people's psychology at a given moment that has to take place and identifying that and tapping into that is is very hard it's an art but it clearly that like what you wear is you're saying something you know when we talk about uh, speech yes i am saying i wrote a book about textiles <laughs> right and i went to india and i got this ecot shirt exactly right <laughs> you have some great uh, examples in in the book about where um say a kid is wearing, oh, I don't know, a leather jacket or dressing like a skate punk, right? And and their parents are concerned, oh, like you're expressing rebelliousness, but it no longer means rebelliousness. Right, it means yeah, it's just yeah. kind of gets watered down at some point. It just kind of means, oh, hey, you know, I'm, I'm cool. And so you have to almost be a sociologist to kind of keep track of the, the way the meanings change over time. And there right? are sociologists who study this sort of thing. But yeah, there is a process by which in the substance of style, I, I compare dreadlocks and neo-Gothic architecture and show the same process where you have something that starts as a very, very subcultural signifier of a specific set of beliefs, ideological, religious, in the case of dreadlocks, religious. Uh, in the case of neo-Gothic architecture, it was developed as this kind of anti-industrial um, response in the 19th century. Let's go back to the Middle Ages. And you, you start with that. And then over time, people adopt it where they want some of the meanings, but not all of the meanings. And so you end up with dreadlocks not being a signifier that I'm a Rastafarian. I'm a, again, I have this sort of African pride or, uh, you know, I'm a creative, I'm a Black 
advertising executive, you know, uh, who, who wants to express my identity and my creativity. I'm not, you know, I'm not working for a bank or something like that. It, it's not that it loses all meaning. It's just a long way from, I believe, Haile Selassie was God. And then similarly with neo-Gothic architecture, it starts out as this medievalist reaction against industrialism, and then it ends up at Princeton building Blair, this dorm that's named after a railroad tycoon, and the train comes right next to it. And it just signifies we're tying ourselves to a tradition of contemplation and education, and we want to be like Oxford and Cambridge. So it's not that it loses all meaning, but it comes to take on a different meaning that is derived from the original one, but very distinctive. So if you're wearing a you know a, a shirt with Lenin on it, it doesn't mean that you support slaughtering peasants or anything like that. It just it's a flavor of the month, right? Yeah, probably means something. I wouldn't wear a shirt with Lenin. I wouldn't wear a shirt with Che. But it probably doesn't mean that particular person's actual political agenda. And then that's, of course, without layering on ideas of irony mm-hmm. or yeah. anything like that, where it may mean the opposite of what it originally meant. So did all of what you learned about how what goes into the manufacture of thread and cloth Did this affect your aesthetic appreciation of these materials? Do you seek out things that are manufactured differently now? Do you value things that are made in a more handicraft way? The more I learn about how uh, what we call oriental rugs are made, the more I appreciate the ones that, that required an enormous amount of labor, even if it was probably poorly compensated labor, it's still, it's like the, the, there's a lot more admiration that I, I mean, I admire the technological sophistication of modern manufacture, but when you find out what goes into say a Panama hat, all of a sudden your appreciation of that just goes up by a whole lot. Has this affected you and, and your, you know, the kinds of things that you buy for yourself? I've definitely collected a lot of interesting textiles over the course of my travels and researches, some just for show and tell purposes. I've also bought some textile art by fine artists today, one of whom I write about in the book, Robin Kang. I still buy mass market textiles. On the other hand, I'm, I visited a, a spinning plant in, in Georgia that makes a very high-end thread, modal and cotton thread, that's, but that goes into very affordable t-shirts that you can buy in a store that I'm not allowed to name, but... <laughs> It's, I'm sure you've shopped there. It's in the other book and they are, they, an $8 t-shirt has this amazing hand to it. It's very soft. And so I do actually look for that. I look for that combination of cotton and modal because I know that it will, it will be very satisfying. That's in a mass market product. But I also have come to a great appreciation of the artistry of traditional textile artisans around the world, many of whom are still producing things for for export, for specialized markets. And the thing that I think is important is that for these crafts to survive in ways that don't condemn people to eternal poverty is they have to be luxuries. They have to be things that that where they are special. They are not the everyday. And I think one of the big mistakes that India has made in its development is in trying to preserve its amazing textile artisanship. I mean, it's, it, it is amazing and very influential in history. But they've tried to do it as a source of employment rather than as a luxury industry. And so the result is you have hand weavers, but they make very little. And you, they, it is a problem in that for a, a country or a city or, or a family to move up the economic ladder, they have to take advantage of these productivity-enhancing inventions as well as appreciating the artistry of handwork. When I was a kid, my my dad worked for a clothing company, and uh, I remember going down to the factory in Center City, Philadelphia, where they were making uh, clothing. And um, of course, they wound up going bankrupt because <laughs> you just can't afford to do it in in downtown Philadelphia with the unionized workforce. And that, I think it was among the last of the factories to to kind of leave leave our shores. But then, just a few years later, a good friend of mine opened up a, a facility that made luxury silk 
scarves and curtains right there also in, in Philadelphia. And, and that, that was really the only way you could do something was to go up that luxury ladder right, in the U.S. Right. And it's all well handcrafted, beautiful stuff. I, and I know hand weavers who, there's a hand weaver I know who just produced, I forget, something like 30 yards of this beautiful uh, fabric for luxury curtains. Fascinating. So what's your next book? Do you have one in, in the works? <laughs> I don't know yet. I've started this position, just started this position at Chapman, which is going to give me an opportunity to dive into some 18th century history, material culture that might lead to something, but whether it's a book or an article, I don't know. So we'll see. I, I like to put enough time between books to, first of all, adequately develop and promote and discuss the old book, but also to be sure that I want to spend the, the several years it takes on the next one. I do. I will say, though, the audio book of this one is just about to come out. Well, Virginia, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. And I want to remind everybody, check this book out, Fabric of Civilization. Really fantastic book. It'll stimulate your interest in a whole bunch of different fields. It, it goes in a bunch of different directions. It's fantastic. And also, this one I hope is still in print, The Substance of Style. Yes, it is. Fantastic book. Thanks again, Virginia. Hope to see you in person sometime soon. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.